Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is Aaron Percival, aka Corporal Hicks. And this is AJ Bischoff, aka Voodoo Magic. And welcome to 2021. This yes. is episode 121, actually. It's a good number to start on. So that absolute shit stain of a year, 2021, uh, 2020's behind us. My goodness. We, we, we're going to try and start off 2021 pretty positive. I mean, we kind of did 2020 as well. That was our big 100 and we had a nice interview for that one. But we've also got a really good interview for this one. So if you listen to our Predator 2 anniversary podcast, you'll have heard that I tried so hard <laughs> to get somebody from the film on the show to talk about it for the anniversary, you know, to go alongside our own retrospective. I emailed Danny Glover's people. I emailed Stephen Hopkins's people. Maria Conchita Alonza? Yes. Tried to contact her. Ruben Blades, I tried to contact him. Even some of the stunt guys. And I got nowhere with it. Aaron, Aaron was doing his due diligence, guys. He was trying his hardest to make an interview happen within his 30th anniversary. And it was I was trying for months as well. This wasn't just me panicking in the last week. This this was me really trying and uh, yeah, got nowhere. But then Screen Magazine uh, came out with their interview with Stephen Hopkins and I messaged him. I was like, how did you get in touch with him? And they tried the same person I did. They tried the same agent I did. So all I learned from that is keep bugging them and eventually you'll get there. So, you know, four or five emails later, who did we get on the show, AJ? Stephen Hopkins. You know, and I would like to think, you know, in my mind that it was our quite public and robust celebration of Predator 2 on avpgalaxy.net, on the socials where the stars just aligned and and encouraged Stephen Hopkins to be just gracious enough to sit down with us for an interview. So, I mean, we relished at the chance and I was so excited to talk to him. And so was Aaron. Both of us are just big fans of the film. And for me, it's the best film in the franchise and one of my favorite films of all time. So this was exciting to talk about Predator 2, you know, what Thomas Brothers called the Bible. And it's truly the core of what most of the extended universe has expanded upon. So this was a quite, you know, pinch me in my in my dreaming moment. And, yeah, what, uh, what, a, what a big one to go for for your first interview on the show. Yes, yes. I mean, this this was, you know, if anyone was going to fanboy out, it was going to be me. And and I was quite nervous, but, you know, I was excited, too, because we we definitely asked. We posed some tasty questions in this interview from Arnold Schwarzenegger's involvement to those legendary NC-17 cut rumors to Predator dance number, you know, on the Lost Predator ship, you know, that video that broke out on YouTube for the longest time. So we have a lot of good questions lined up and it was an exciting interview. And and for those hardcore alien fans out there, there's going to be some alien discussion for you as well to chew on including um, Hopkins and maybe his involvement with Alien 3. And of course, that Xenomorph skull in the Lost Predator ship trophy room. And we even discussed that certain slaughterhouse scene, you know, that was eerily similar to a certain scene in James Cameron's Aliens. So is that a coincidence? We'll find out. If you haven't caught on, we've already recorded this interview. Um, it's not about to happen from our perspectives as as, um, as we're recording. This was recorded at the end of end of 2020, and it's all nicely done and ready. Um, we're recording this after I've already edited it and everything. So, so AJ, are you what, ready? Yeah, what do you say? Do we do we do a magic transition or a predator sound effect swipe to uh, lead us into the interview? Shit happens. 
<laughs> I, I meant an actual sound effect. I've already got one ready. Oh. But yeah. that's, that's staying in. Okay, let's do it. Anyway, enjoy, enjoy the interview. Okay, first things first, Stephen. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to come and talk to a big couple of Predator fans, Predator nerds on the internet. Now, uh, but, but before we start to actually dig into Predator 2, though, I was hoping you could tell our listeners and our viewers a little about Stephen Hopkins outside of Predator 2. Can you tell us a little about your journey as a filmmaker? Uh, well, I started off as a comic book artist as, as a kid. You know, I was uh, uh, before I even went to art school, I was doing splash pages for Marvel UK and then various underground comics and album covers and punk for punk bands and stuff like that. It was kind of a lonely job. You know, I mean, if I want to go way back, I was born in Jamaica and brought up in Jamaica and America and then and arrived in England in the 60s and discovered that England had lots of white people and no beaches and then went to school there. And I and I'd, I'd sort of grown up, we traveled around the States for a long time in a car. So I'd grown up reading comic books. So I was a comic book freak and I've got a, a gigantic collection now in boxes all over the place. So I was a big comic book fan, and that didn't really work out. I was too young. I wasn't really good enough, I don't think, or I wasn't applied enough, and it was a lonely job. So I, I just accidentally got a job doing storyboards for rock videos in the very early 80s. I think Duran Duran was the first video I worked on, I think. And then I became a, a designer very quickly, very young, and worked with some of these great rock video directors like Russell Mulcahy specifically, and David Mallett and Brian Grant and Steve Barron sort of occasionally. And then I just uh, started designing big videos and big commercials. And then in those days, people couldn't really tell what you had or hadn't done. So I just lied a lot and started directing lots of rock videos at the age of like 23, 24, moved to New York started doing stuff there. And then I was supposed to go to Australia to do uh, an Elton John video or a few Elton John videos. And I got there uh, just doing the sets for them, like sad songs and all these big you know, uh, videos. And he decided to get married to a woman, which surprised all of us. So I got stuck there. And while I got stuck there waiting for the videos to happen, I started directing a lot of rock videos there. And, and when I was there, I did lots of rock videos and commercial. I did big theater, musical theater, I think called Rasputin, which was enormous. And then my friend Russell Mulcahy invited me to come and do the second unit. Actually, he wanted me, first of all, to design the Highlander. And I thought, you know, uh, there's no, I'm too young. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to be a disaster. So I turned it down. And then he asked me to do second unit, which was very exciting. So I went to England from when I was living in Australia. So I stayed in Australia, went back to England and, and went to Scotland and New York and, and London and shot. And that was my first film experience, which was just a fantastic experience. I ended up having Sean Connery for a bunch of days and he you know, publicly humiliated me on set every day because I was so stupid. But I shot loads of great stuff and I knew Russell's style very well, you know, so I was copying what he was doing. And then because of that, actually, that I just happened to, you know, I did lots of, directed lots of big music concerts for Mick Jagger and different people around the world. And then directed a tiny film in Australia called Dangerous Game, which was seen in Cannes by a bunch of Hollywood people. As I got invited to Hollywood and I was going to do Pet Cemetery 2, I think, originally. I didn't, or Pet Cemetery, but it didn't happen. And I ended up doing Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child which was quite a, and it was during a writer's strike. So we sort of had to make it up as we went. And I got that job on Valentine's Day and it had to be out in August. And so I was actually shooting a few days before it was in the cinema. And during that, Joel Silver, Joel Silver at the time was just picking off 
Nightmare on Elm Street directors, I think, and grabbing him for stuff. And he, and Dangerous Game was quite a big sort of stylish action film on a small budget. So he just, you know, came to me with this, and I thought this is incredibly exciting. So I started working on Project Two before I finished Nightmare Five, and um, we kind of overlapped. So that's the very short version of all of that. Did Joel see Dangerous Game? I think he or one of his people had seen it. I think he had seen it. Yeah, yeah. Joel's like a, a computer. He was. He was a. In those days, he was such a ferocious filmmaker, and he could remember everything that everyone had ever done. He had this, you know, computer mind for stuff. And obviously, style was something that he enjoyed sometimes more than substance. I think. And Larry Gordon and Joel both produced Predator Two, and it was for Fox, and it was Rupert Murdoch's first film at Fox when they took over. So we're, we're in the middle of a transition, and he, yeah, I, I think he just liked the way my stuff looked. He thought it was, and and that was enough. I think, you know, and I was cheap. Actually, thanks to him, less cheap after that, and then, <laughs> and then we didn't have a huge budget for Predator Two, but you know what? A, what a great opportunity! You know, and I was allowed to get Larry Paul on and my mate Peter Levy from Australia, and so it was a riot. It still ended up being more expensive than the first film. I don't know. I don't know how much the first film cost. Actually, I, I think our our film cost thirty million. You know, which is not a which is a lot of money. I think, but not a massive amount of money for you know a huge science fiction action film. And the film we made was you know all before the digital time, so everything was a film optical. It was quite an unwieldy thing to make. You know, it wasn't like you could go oh, we'll just put that creature in later. That didn't happen in those days. We'll, we'll do it in post. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everything had to be done, you know, really properly because you, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't. It was all film opticals. We shot a chunk of it on seventy mil, actually, because so as the opticals were you know, constantly changed, it didn't degrade too much. And those cameras were that big. <laughs> Speaking of uh, the first film, one of our traditions on the show that we love to ask our guests, especially the ones such as yourself who have shaped the franchise in such significant ways, is about the first time they actually encountered the predator so do you remember the first time you actually saw the original 1987 film and what was your thoughts about it i'm gonna be a terrible person and say i saw it when i got the job because i hadn't caught up to it at the time <laughs> i've been living in australia and i'd been working flat out and i had i had never seen it but i i saw it and then i met john mctiernan who was at Fox working? I, you know, obviously he did Die Hard after that, right? After, and I had a long chat with him about it, and he was really helpful. And you know, he's a very serious guy, John. So he didn't, you know, Predator to him was not like camp sort of horror experience. It was a very thematic. You know, he's a great director, and if you watch his work from a director's point of view, anyway, you, you can see that he has so much skill. You know, there's a lot of stuff happens in one shot, or it's very carefully thought out. But it was obvious that the first Predator film was really so well cast. The idea was so terrific. And he never saw the Predator until the end. And one of the reasons Joel explained that the Predator wasn't really, they didn't really know what it was until late into filming. You know, at one point it was Jean-Claude Van Damme on stilts. And then that was redesigned by Stan into all these different amalgamations of things into a guy into Kevin, you know, in an amazing suit. But the suit in the first film, you hardly ever saw it as it's really well lit. And in the second film, obviously, we had to see a lot of this creature. And, and you'd already seen it, so it was no huge surprise. So so Stan had really uh, upgraded the Predator uh, when I came along. And then we continued to upgrade it even more, you know, knowing that we were going to have close-ups all of the place. He was going to be a main character in it. 
kind of going into you know the the development of of Predator Two then. So you know you you start the film. You haven't seen the first one necessarily. Well, I saw it. Even as I offered it, I, I, all my friends knew about it. I went. I went. Got a great a screening and a fantastic. So, cinema, and, it was yeah. it was already in like your public oh, consciousness. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But for, for for nerds like us, though, there's so much outside of, of the movies. You know, there's what they call the expanded universe or the comics and stuff like that. Now, when you were working on, on Predator 2, the franchise didn't have that. The sprawling expanded universe that it does now. All those books on that shelf behind me, a load of those are Predator books. Right. Um, you didn't have that. You had a single comic, the very first comic from Dark Horse and Mark Verhaden. Now, we've mm-hmm. had the pleasure of speaking to Mark in the past, and he told us that he'd at least met with the Thomas brothers um, yeah. to discuss his series and, and where he was going with it. You know, the, the brothers seem to have taken some inspiration from that first issue. So I was curious as to if you personally, because you were so involved in the scripting process as well, were you aware of the comic and did that directly inspire any of the things that you brought to Predator 2? I thought the comic didn't come out, I thought it came out concurrently when we were working on the film, I think. I think your first issue was the one that... Is this the, the one that was drawn by Ross Andrew? Did he draw it? Oh, no, no it, was it was Chris Warner. Um, Chris, all right. So I think you, I mean, AJ might know better than me. I've worked with Mark on other things, actually, since then. Apparently, the story goes, as Mark presents it, is that Joel reached out to him. It was a four-issue series, and the first issue was out. And Joel Silver reached out to him, or, you know, one of his representatives, and says, hey, we really like your story. We want to see where it's going in the rest of the issues. And can we meet with you? So apparently, Joel Silver sent some representatives and the Thomas brothers to talk to Mark. And that first issue is very similar to... The backbone of Predator too, in regards to it was a Predator in LA, was it? It's New York. In New York. Oh yeah, I do remember that now. Now I remember it. Yes, thank you. In New York, that's where it was. Yeah, yeah it didn't have the competing gangs. Yeah, I, I have to apologise. I mean, it was thirty years ago, so some of this stuff is a li- little jumbled, and it was yeah, kind of a rush thing anyway. But now I remember that. I remember seeing the drawings of that, and I'm a big fan of Mark's, and we worked together since on Tales from the Crypt and all sorts of stuff. And yeah, I remember that now. And I, I, could, I couldn't remember if that was you know, some storyboards from somebody else, but it was the actual comic book. And then I remember being slightly involved in the Dark Horse version with Ross Andrew drawing a version, uh, like a comic book based on the movie. Right? Yeah, they did. They did a. Um, they did a. Two well, I was able to draw the Predator too. I think the Predator always. Yeah, I mean, unless you're unless you've got that kind of you know what it's hard to draw him in the old comic book style because he's unless he feels larger than life and, and beautifully lit he can look a bit goofy i think yeah well it's very dependent on the artist skill there isn't it yeah was was that any particular inspiration do you remember was there anything in there that you saw that you know was pulled with you to predator 2 or was it just I, a- I do remember seeing the drawings now but i i think you know, we because we were doing it in LA, it was we were much more focused on what LA was going to be like in the crazy future <laughs> than it was, and we thought it was going to be a very hot, dusty, anarchic world, which is certainly true about Los Angeles right now. And we, you know, looking for style, we sort of went into a sort of Latino Cuban retro style of the future, and you know, where the police station was guarded and there were riots and gangs. So I think the gangs thing was a basis from the comic book idea, I think, and then you know that the predator comes up. But being in LA, it wasn't, it didn't have that sort of New York 
feel. But I think I did some drawings actually, and I think in the film too, when we wanted to put the Predator on the top of the Eastern Building in LA, that was a sort of New York homage there because I always I always saw him hovering above, you know, like in all good superhero things, right, looking down on the, on the Empire State on some sort of gargoyle yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But in 1989, you couldn't really leap from building to building in LA because the winter. That's fair. So you, you mentioned Joel earlier, you know, how he liked your style in particular. When, you know, when he reached out to you, do you do you remember any more about those sort of like early conversations? You know, how did he pitch this project to you? And, you know, what was your immediate reactions to what you could bring to this? Well, Joel is just, you know, a very direct person. And he just said, we wanted something mind-blowing and huge and stylish and, you know, and and took bits from my first film as I love that bit. And it, it really didn't take very long. You know, it was... In those days, it was interesting when you'd start a film, you'd often have a conversation with a head of a studio or a producer as big as Joel, and you'd go, okay, and you'd shake hands and off you go. And there was no real, you know, the script was not completely finished. So I was sent like a 60-page, mostly finished draft, and we'd just come out of a writer's strike. And then we were about to go into a new writer's strike. So we had to do a lot of, um, and and the Thomas Brothers obviously knew this stuff really well and worked with Joel a lot. And knew this character better than anyone else. And of course, originally it was, you know, Arnold's character with Lieutenant Harrigan, you know, in the original version. It started off on a golf course with this guy with white hair playing golf and a helicopter lands and these guys come out and the guy with the white hair turns around and it's Arnold with a scar across his face and, and they say he's back and off you go. And it was uh, Arnold and, and uh, Danny, you know, together going through this at the time, but then that didn't work out. I think for mainly because Jim Cameron, who I knew pretty well then, just didn't want Arnold to do Predator 2 and then Terminator 2. And it was really, he, he sort of gave him a choice. And I, and I, you know, how can you argue with that choice? Terminator 2 is one of the greatest, you know, science fiction films I've ever made. So, so I think Arnold really knew that he couldn't do all both at the same time because it didn't feel right. And, and so he didn't. I think it was a problem at the box office, probably. There was a rumor circulating for years afterwards that the Gary Busey role, the character Peter Keyes, was always intended for Arnold to play. So as you mentioned, you you had planned for Danny Glover and Arnold Schwarzenegger together to star in Predator 2 at one point. Can you recall if that governmental Keyes role was no, somewhat... It was, Arnold was going to play the same characters he did from the first film. He was going to play the guy who'd been through that madness, had left like the gunslinger, and I think Keyes pulled it back in, but the Keyes wasn't such a big character in the original script. Because Arnold didn't do it, he became a much bigger character, a government character. So would he have would he have been there sort of like tracking the Predator to kill it down kind of thing? or He would have been the guy who wouldn't have been telling the cops what was going on, but trying to use the police force to get him into a position to deal with the creature. And the government would have wanted him to be on their side, but I think he would he was going to be fighting for his own agenda. He wanted revenge and he wanted to know what was going on uh, as opposed to, and he was going to use the government and eventually ally himself with Harrigan and go head to head with the creature. So kind of like a three-way kind of situation, you know, the cops are dealing with it, Dutch is there with his own agenda trying to deal with it, and the... Um, the government's doing what they would do in the finished film of picking, you know, it up for the technology. Yeah. So that's interesting. So that, that was like a 60-page thing? Yeah, so Joel and Larry, obviously, had both done independently 48 hours and lethal weapons, you know, so it was very much in that wheelhouse where there was two cops who didn't really know each other and had to fight together against something. 
So once Arnold was out, you had to cast or you came up with a great casting choice of Danny Glover. Mm -hmm. Danny Glover uh, reported to say that one of the many reasons he jumped at the chance to play Mike Harrigan in Predator 2 was the opportunity to break through racial boundaries. And as Danny Glover put it, when's the last time you saw a black man fighting a supernatural being? Right. So was it difficult in 1989, 1990 for you to get the studio to agree on casting Danny Glover and such a hugely diverse supporting cast? I think they were, you know, concerned on the international markets. They were worried about stuff like that. Obviously, hopefully it doesn't matter anymore. Mind you, I think it does in certain markets, you know, there's still a racism involved. But luckily, Danny had done the Lethal Weapon films, which were huge. And I think that helped us break a mold, you know, and because we set it into this Latino future, we were allowed to have Maria Cachita Alonso and Ruben Blades and, uh, and, and really diversify like that. And it wasn't a, a conscious anti-racism choice because I'm blind to that kind of thing, I hope. I hope I am as much as possible. So I just wanted the you know the best people for the point. And Joel really fought it, and Fox weren't sure, and they were kept on trying to figure out whether the. I, I, but Danny also wasn't. It wasn't just a, a, a racial thing. I think it was also he wasn't. He hadn't stood out. He hadn't been the lead in one of these films before. You know, and later in my career. I've done movies like Blown Away and things like that, and where I cast actors who weren't really action stars a lot of the time because I always liked to blend that kind of intelligent actor with action, you know, because I was brought up with the great 60s and 70s thrillers and action movies like Gene Hackman. You know, these are not sort of, you know, studly go-to-the-gym kind of guys. They're just really tough, rough guys. And I, I, I always liked that in, in my thrillers. And, and I kind of saw this, you know, more of a thriller in a way, I think, than, than a horror film. It was more like that. It was more probably like French Connection than it was like, you know, a normal horror movie, I think. That's one of the interesting things about Predator as a concept, though. I think it's really flexible in what you do with it. So you can take it and put it in different genres and sort of see what the result is. And, you know, you've got that with Predator 2 being so different from from the, the way the first one's handled and then the third one and then the batshit crazy fourth one kind of thing. So, yes. What's the batshit crazy fourth one? Which one's that? Shane Black's. All right. And I'm so surprised that film didn't do better because Shane is a master of this genre. I mean, he, I mean, you, you mentioned I, Lethal Weapon already, you know, that film's yeah. fucking brilliant. And I think his film was really mucked about in post, I think. Yeah. It doesn't fit right. It doesn't feel like he's, he's such a smart guy. Yeah. It, it was very much a... Um, he had his own vision that was still in crazy anyway. We've seen the first script, but then you had the studio interference that just ripped it to pieces in the edit. So, yeah. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Shane Black. <laughs> thing. Just to go back a little in the timeline, because I think we missed one here. And that's in terms of, you know, your early collaboration with, with the Thomas brothers. Now, the, the great thing about those guys is they were there for one and two. And they said they treated the second one as, as the Predator Bible. So in August of, of 89, you began developing Predator 2 with the Thomas brothers before that first draft was even completed. And, I mean, you just said you got a 60-page thing with, with Arnie. And, you know, you personally contribute story sequences like the, you know, the opening street shootout, the, the subway train sequence. You know, you, you apparently drew more than 400 storyboards for the film. People like to go on about Ridley Scott and Alien, but you were here cranking them out for Predator 2 as well. So, Actually, you know... I found them recently. There are 1,100 pages of them. And the... And the ones that were in the ultraviolet speaking for in black with color on them. I mean, they're all, they're very literal. <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, 
I, you know, I think I don't think I injected many of my own sequences. I think I think everything in here was in was from the Thomas brothers. You know, I think I hopefully made them bigger and better, or or at least better or something. But there were financial constraints which sometimes pushed us into different areas. So things would change. But I think I think all the sequences were in the original draft of it. I don't think I was smart enough to add a whole bunch of stuff into it. Well, what was it like working with those guys, though? I mean, especially from such an early early process. I mean, I don't think that tends to be terribly typical of working all the way through that creative process with the writers, is it? You know, you come aboard sort of towards the end, maybe do a rewrite or two. But, you know, what, what was it like working with those guys? Well, they knew exactly what they wanted, you know, and they'd been working on it for a while, I think. So they're delightful guys and you've spoken to them i'm sure over the years right oh, they they really they have no social presence whatsoever and i can't oh, find really? any contact details no, i can't i don't think i've seen them since we did i think i think years later i came across them once for something and and but yeah they are very quiet in the background kind of they're like a couple of cowboys these guys and and <laughs> But they're very gently spoken, but they're very clear about what they saw and they and, and, you know, and they knew what Joel liked and they knew what worked from the first film. You know, it wasn't supposed to be, I don't think, quite as hyperbolic as maybe I helped it become. I think it was supposed to be more of a, a menacing sort of, you know, thriller in a city. And, and I and I think, you know, I got carried away with all the new toys I've never had before and, and uh <laughs> and, and of course, we could do things in those days you can't really do often in films now. We you can't land helicopters in the middle of LA anymore, or you know, blow up streets. And you know, our first week was that opening shootout, and uh, and it was just mayhem. I don't know how we got away with it. Really. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I've got to say, the Thomas brothers are going to take stuff. Stan Winston, uh, I worked a lot more with Stan than I did with them. I think coming up with new gags. You know, we were very involved in the creature design, kind of. Yeah, they, they had a million ideas, and we just narrowed them down to the ones that we thought we could do well, you know, and, and that were fitted into the story. So it just wasn't, you know, stuff happening all over the place. I got very involved, you know, in the sequence in the slaughterhouse. We put, you know, we came up with the ideas of having the dust in the air and, and all the different cameras on the shoulders and, and all that kind of stuff, which was, you know, very complicated to shoot. And, and yeah, and then I wanted the predator to, to feel like a larger than life, real creature, you know, that had its own mystery and stuff. So I concentrated on him a lot. And then we just went to town making all the characters, you know, how about those Jamaican guys? Oh my God, they were so bonkers. <laughs> and didn't you get those guys just off the street? Like a lot of them weren't actors. I mean, Calvin Lockhart was, I think, a Shakespearean actor, but yeah. some like Goldtooth and stuff, weren't they like bouncers? No, they're all stunt guys. They're all stunt guys. Stunt guys. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. they, they all had to, there wasn't a lot of chatting going on there, but they had to have a physical presence and then they all had to die fantastically horribly. So, and they did. Did Joel Silver, he, he tends to have this reputation of being a hands-on producer. I know, I think Predator 2 and Die Hard 2 were sort of parallel. Uh, was, yeah. he, was he spending most of his time with your production or was he over on the Die Hard 2 set most of the time? He was on the Die Hard 2 set because I think it was a very troubled production. I think they went, you know, you know, you heard all the stories, I'm sure they went for snow and they didn't have snow and they kept on moving around. And, and it went, I think, quite heavily over budget. And uh, but he, when I needed him, he was always there. And, he, you know, he'd come in and abuse somebody and make things happen and, and fight for things. He was a big fighter. 
But actually, I mean, this is all history, so it's nothing new. During the making of the film, he was thrown off the Fox a lot, actually, and he wasn't allowed to be there anymore. So, And he was finally allowed to come back in for some of the sound mix, but he really went up against you know, the Fox studio and, and they chucked him off the lot for a while. He never Can you back. fill us in on this one? Because I know the, the, the Ruben Blades situation where you intervened on that uh, live broadcast and pulled him right off, you know, it was Joan London, I think it was, um, and got a lot of heat for that. But this yeah. just Silver thing is new to me. What happened there? Oh, I think it's, if you look at history books, it's all there. I think he just really, I think Die Hard 2 turned into a huge production issue for the studio and they didn't have any luck on the film. They were moving to Denver to get snow and there was no snow, so they'd moved to Boston. You know, really big, you know, huge budget moves for everything. And I think he just got to a point of uh, fighting with them so much that they just said, look, you know, uh, it, it got really heavy. And our film was actually quietly being made in the background while Die Hard 2 was, was going sort of through the roof. I'm not. I'm not telling anything that people don't know. I think. I think he just. Uh, you know, he ended up at Warner Brothers after that. You know, and he never made another movie for Fox. I don't think. It was over Die Hard too that he was thrown off. It wasn't anything from Predator. No, we, we we got looked at more after he because of it. In case we were doing something outrageous. In fact, our production manager got fired and they put someone new in, and and I had to deal with a lot of suddenly being under the microscope in case we were running a mock. But we didn't have the kind of budget that Die Hard Two was huge. The Die Hard Two budget. In in terms of like your experience, you know, on the set as a as a director, you know, it was what your your third big. Second big film, really, I guess? My first really big film, you know, Nine Around Street Fire, we shot in a shoe factory for six million bucks. So so I think this was my first, yeah, big Hollywood experience. I mean, The Highlander, I I did a lot of work on that. I was on that film for months and months, and I shot huge sequences on that film. But this was my first, yeah, personal, first outing. In in terms of, you know, that kind of thing, it being then your first real big studio kind of thing, did did you find... It an easy experience because you know I see a lot of parallels between you and like David Fincher and his first big film was notoriously um, awkward <laughs> to do. Was so it, as, 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 was it yeah, Alien Three? Yeah. So you know, from your perspective as as it being your first big director gig, how how was that experience getting through? Was were you not fighting with the studio? You were just getting on, and even though you were doing your crazy twenty year twenty eight year old running around the streets kind of thing, it was a smooth process. Uh, I, I didn't. I was so excited. I didn't really notice a lot of that stuff. There wasn't a lot of studio politics. You are, you know, they said this is what you got to make it, make it. You know, we already had the wonderful Alan Silvestri involved, so he, you knew he was going to do a great job. And it, there was already a, an audience for it, they thought. So that, I, it, there were some moments where they wouldn't let me do stuff, so I would have a fight stuff. I've always fought too much probably in my career, made you know enemies here and there and get too carried away. It was actually just mainly a pleasurable experience, I think, because, you know, Danny was terrific. Uh, Gary was just a riot. And on, on set, and Maria and Bill Paxton, obviously, was just everyone's favorite because he's such a delightful, great guy. And Ruben Blades, you know, was just a, a just a really cool bloke too. That that interview thing was an amazing because you know, we're shooting this. We, we we had two nights doing this big sequence, you know, to do with them finding the dead bodies in the in the in the stuff, and we had these huge complicated. We had cranes on top of cranes on top of cranes doing these complicated shots, and the sun was going up. And I'm going to Josh McLaughlin, the AD. Where is Ruben? And he said he's sitting outside because they're getting interviews all the time, right? 
And so the sun's coming up. I'm about to lose the whole thing. And I see him there and he's a great guy. And I had no idea it was live. So I just, you know, pulled in apparently cursed on for the uh, Good Morning America's last ever live interview, apparently because of it. And I had no idea. And we shot it and we got it. And it was great. I went to bed and I woke up with like 50 messages on my antique answering machine the next evening before going to work and found out I you know, caused such a lot of trouble. And I got, I mean, I got death threats about it. And, I, and, and after shooting the following night, we went on to Good Morning America the following morning, Ruben and I, and we, we were thinking of playing some gags and having a fight you know, during, the, during the interview. But, but in the end, we could hear Joan London in New York and everyone talking. They didn't realize we could hear them talking, and they, didn't, they weren't looking for trouble. So we could hear what they wanted, and we just smiled. And, and I apologized because obviously I had no idea. <laughs> Did the studio give you any heat for that? No, everyone was on my side. It was a completely innocent mistake, and I was just to get the shot, you know. So <laughs> this is fair. So, personally speaking, for me in particular, the the could have bins of films are one of the things that I just I absolutely love learning about. It fascinates me. It fascinates me so much. So, on that vein, one of the things I'd really like to ask you about is the other potential casting choices that could have been made for Predator Two. One of the more interesting ones for me in particular is this mention of John Lithgow potentially being in the running for Peter Keys. You know, do you remember much about meeting with him and what that I, I would have been like? I worked with him years later. I mean, he would be would have been great because he's such a giant, towering presence. But he's I don't remember that at all. I, I maybe they'd talked to him before I came on or something, but it was it was all very rushed. It was it, it was yeah. an accelerated production from beginning to end. When they finally went go, we went boof, when we were off, we were we were off and running. You know, with very little production, very little prep really for a film like that, because a lot of the you know Stan Winston had done a lot of the work beforehand, so which is a huge thing, and all the robotics guys had tested everything. But no, I mean you know, John Lithgow would have been great, but there's something about Gary in that film where he's just so full of energy he's, and he suits that. the film. He's so specific. You know, he'll he does exactly what you are you know asking to do, and he and he does it with this unbridled love of acting. You know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't get into it. It's great. Were there, were there any other potential casting choices that stick out in your head for anybody? No, I think. You know, Maria was a really obvious choice. She was quite a big star at that point. Bill obviously had been in, you know, Aliens 2 by then, right? That had already been made, right? And so I think he was really well known and perfect for it because he's such a fun guy as well as such a great actor, I think. Once Danny was on, and and, and one of the reasons I was pleased about Danny too, I think sometimes in films, if you get an actor like that, they're a magnet for other good actors. People go, oh, we want to work with Danny Glover. So there was no problem getting on that kind of stuff. And because we placed it in a sort of Latino future, we were really going for Latino actors a lot for guys around him. You know, I, I think we really didn't spend, you know, it wasn't like people were coming in and reading the script. You know, we went for people. I, I, I wish I had some fun, exciting anecdotes to tell you, but it's just the way it was. Well, speaking of uh, of Bill, then you know it's you know it's been four years since he passed, and you know we we all still really miss him, and he's made such a, a big impact on you know the the specifically the films we love as well, you know the ones that we're here to talk about on the website as well as so many others. And Bill was one of these people that you, or so the story goes, that you know you just went, Bill, do you want this role? Um, I love doing Aliens. Do you want to come and be on this thing? So you know what was what was your experience working with him? Is there any particular sort of like days that stand out where he just like knocked your socks off or anything? like that i think he wanted to do it actually because he liked the character 
character because his character was a real goofball, you know, but you can't just do comedy relief. You know, if you're going to have someone playing a cop, they can't just be there for jokes. They've got to be good at their jobs, you know. So his character was a really, because Bill's a very tough guy, you know, he's a very athletic, very strong guy. So he's willing to play and, and have fun, but he also really was committed to his stuff. It's very difficult for you to ask me to remember days on set 30 years ago now, but but it's uh, but he was up for anything, you know, and I don't think he and Gary Busey had any scenes together because that would have been an explosion, I think, if that had happened because those two energy together in one room, they're both really high energy people and it would have been a real, that would have been a real energy off, I think, between the two of those guys. But, but Bill, you know, Bill was up for anything. He, he'd make a fool of himself. You wouldn't want to get into a fight with Bill. You know, it's like difference between Sean Connery and Roger Moore. Sean Connery can make a joke, but you wouldn't want to get in a fight with him. I know, actually, because he's yelled at me on set. But Roger Moore, you'd probably share a joint with Roger, I think. Do you know what I mean? As opposed to... So, but Bill, <laughs> Bill was like possibly a real formidable physical presence as well as having all the other stuff to go along with it. So, I think that, that's what made his character so popular in the film, I think. I don't know if you heard this, Stephen, but the fans have developed a theory that Bill's character, Jerry Lambert, has fathered Leona's baby. We know there was a husband. <laughs> we know there was a husband in that script that was ultimately cut out. Right. But uh, that's the going theory now. They I, don't think, I don't think she would have had him. I don't think. <laughs> I think they genuinely, the, the characters, the actors really liked each other, but the characters really didn't like each other. And, and that was one of the fun things about that pairing, I think. So, yeah, I don't think that was his baby. Well, I guess speaking about cutscenes, it's well known that the classification board had originally wanted to give Predator 2 an NC-17 rating. Yeah. And, to, and to prevent that, you had to make many cuts to bring it down to an R. It always sounded like these were smaller cuts made around gore rather than any significant changes. But we were curious if there was any substantial impacting cuts that you can recall, even impressive gore that you wish fans could have seen. You know, I'd love to be able to come up with some stuff again, but actually it was really frame by frame cutting. I think we had to go back 17 times with the film. And a part of it was political. I think they were trying to make a statement with Joel's films because he was making all these big violent action films. And I'd already had a run in with them on Nightmare on Elm Street too, as well. They, I think they, they also had a hard on a little bit for Bob Shea in the Nightmare films. And, and um, it was just this period of time. So because I'd had a run in with them and Joel constantly, they wanted to make a bit of an example. And at one point it was thought, you know, well, maybe we should just go with the NC-17. Maybe that would be huge, you know, the first time anyone had done it. But, I, you know, there are all the repercussions of not being advertised in newspapers. And, you know, this is obviously before the internet. And so it was a really uh, a choice that the studio wasn't willing to make. But in the end, actually, it was more to do with political conversations, I think, as well as tiny cuts, you know, and, and some of the nudity in the Jamaican scene with Terry Weagle and, and, and hanging on shots too long. It, it was really that kind of boring stuff that could cut out. I don't think they didn't cause us to cut any scenes out of the film. It was, it was just a sort of trying to whiz by things. And of course, this was a time when it wasn't easy to freeze frame things like it is now. You know, now you can go through every frame and see every disgusting gore. And and I'm actually shockingly not a big gore fan. I gotta say, I'm kind of queasy, and and I'm, so uh, I just thought it was all fun. 
you know, I, I didn't never really saw it as like, you know, but I, I, at the same time, I think if there's violence in films, I think it should have an impact. I don't think it should ever be violent porn. You know, I think it should be, oh, that's, you know, it, it should be frightening. That's the point of it, right? It's it's turned into this big urban legend. It has grown that, you know, people are suspecting there's just 20 more minutes of Predator 2 oh God, what, gore. What, and What should we make up now? <laughs> there was a huge underwater sequence, which was great. And, and lots of... No, in the end, you know, it was like scenes like King Willie being killed and his head being stuck, all that kind of stuff. You have to go into every single thing and to, to make them feel good about themselves. But no, I mean, there was no time. You know, there was no... We, we had no time to edit this thing. And, and because in those days we were still editing on film, I had a desk the size of this room because some of it was in 70 mil, some of it was in 35 mil. So Mark Goldblatt and I when we were sitting in the edit room, we were going, if we're going to make an edit, we just look at each other and go, okay, come back later, because you'd have to cut all these different, you know, 10 tracks of sound, and you literally have to climb across the steam bag to get to that bit and cut that bit. And it was all done film. And if you if you change the visual effect, the repercussions were the time and money were huge. And we just said to sort of go with our gut. Well, speaking of that small window, and actually I remember as a young teenager reading those magazines and like, oh my God, you know, Stephen Hopkins, he had no time on Nightmare on Elm Street 5. And now he had no time in Prayer 2. Is he going to think that this is like the way Hollywood goes? But I mean, with principal photography beginning February 20th, 1990, and with that final release date being moved up to November 21st, and that ridiculous small window you had to complete the film, do you look back and marvel at the accomplishment Predator 2 is with such a small period of time to make it? Yeah, I did a good job of putting, of shooting the right shots, you know, but a lot of other people, you know, you know, Mark Goldblatt obviously is a master of his craft and you look at all the great films he's done. But Joel Hynek, who did all the visual effects stuff, which a lot of it was brand new and it was all on film. So there were no quick turnarounds on things. You know, so we were editing and doing the visual effects as we went, you know, and, and that's the only way it could happen. And it kind of suited me then because I, you know, when you're 28, you don't need to sleep, right? You just, you're like on it, you know, my hair's flying in the wind and we're just like, you know, zooming <laughs> along. And Alan Zavestri had done, we, you know, we'd taken a lot of the score from the first film. We, it was all re-recorded beautifully back up at Skywalker Ranch afterwards with this huge orchestra, which is one of the highlights of, of my career, I think, working with him on that first one. But everyone knew what they were doing. You know, Stan knew what he was doing. Everything was properly prepared from that point of view. But it, and, and I didn't really change, actually. I, I very rarely have done a film where the post was this generous, gorgeous thing. I mean, and now it gets worse and worse on electronic posts because now they think, oh, look, electronic, you just do it. And, it. and there's a different way of thinking in those days, you know. But it, it, was, it was that kind of film, I think. It was shot with a velocity, you know, the film has a huge amount of velocity. It doesn't hang around very much. You know, it just, it's a train. It's a fast train. And we, were, we all knew it before we started. I always thought the Thanksgiving release was a strange choice, but yeah, what do I know? I, you know, I haven't worked in Hollywood before, so they know what they're doing. I always thought it was a, I guess it was a counter-programming experiment, you know, and I'm not sure if it worked, but I mean, I, I, I know it opened really well the first weekend, but I think everyone was so disappointed by the, the Arnold thing. Yeah, probably if we had a couple more months, we could have finessed it better, but it really wouldn't have changed the film, I don't think that much, the nature of it. 
Yeah, I remember that being a big criticism that Arnold wasn't coming back. It was like a Terminator film without Arnold or an alien film without Sigourney Weaver. It, at that point, it was still considered Arnold's franchise. And and I think during the time of Predator 2's release, he was the biggest box office star in the world. And that was between Total Recall and Kindergarten Cop and then Terminator 2 that followed it. Yeah. So that must have been rough. You know, you already had the chips against you. Yeah, I, I didn't know, you know, I, I had no idea. But yeah, I didn't realize he was such a huge star till afterwards. But, you know, there's been Terminator films with Arnold in which have been shit too, you know, and there have been a couple of alien films that haven't been so, very well, just didn't work with Sigourney. So well, this came later, yeah. yeah. This was the day when film posters were an actor's giant face. That's, that's what, that's, there was the era of that in those days. And that's not the case anymore. Now, if there was a Predator, it might not have the actor's face on it. It's more of a brand thing, you know, but yeah, if, right. it had been, if it had been Predator 2 with Arnold in, it wouldn't have, uh, he's in town for a few days to kill with him waiting on the thing. It would have been Arnold. And that made all the difference. And But I mean, I think it would have been impossible for him to do it. I think the schedule with the Terminator film and then that film was a film that took a very long time to make. And Jim is very meticulous in his prep and, and everything. So he was just not willing to get caught up in, in our schedule, I think. Yeah, well, it, it, that was probably him being burnt over the first one, to be honest, because didn't, didn't he get pulled back off the original for Conan? Is that right, AJ? Oh, did he? Yeah, so um, Aunt James I... wanted to do Terminator with Arnie, but then he got pulled off to do one of the Conans. Yeah, oh, Conan so sequel to Conan. It was a sequel yeah. to Conan. So, but actually, James Cameron found that that was a benefit because it gave him more time to prep for his right. Terminator shoot. I mean, the Terminator, the first Terminator film, is a great example of a guerrilla style of shooting on a science fiction film. I always with Predator Two, I went a bit crazy, but those science fiction films where you feel like they really happen and they're grounded and stuff, and the, that world exists, that's always more fascinating to me than the, the completely. You know, Lost in Space is an example of not a grounded film. It's just, you know, <laughs> there's, no, there's no reality to it at all. Whereas this was, as I said, we shot it, we decided to shoot it like a dusty Western, you know, in LA. And it was more like a Western and a thriller than a, than a science fiction film or a, or a horror movie, I think. One of the aspects of Predator 2 that fans love so much is just the expansive world building when it came to the Predators themselves. In particular, the City Hunter Predator introduced a wonderful array of otherworldly weapons to audiences. Now, the Thomas brothers previously mentioned that there were twice as many weapons developed for this film, but only half of them made it into the movie. So do you recall at all, Stephen? I know it's been a while. It's been 30 years. But do you recall any of the other weapons in the Predator's arsenal that didn't make it on screen let's see the ones we introduced were that net that he fires out of his wrist right we had a version of the laser thing in the first one but we made it bigger and better did he have this uh, the spear in the first one no because no. no. had that expanding we saw where it came from the flying disc you know i should be better prepared but i remember you know stan's shop had loads of drawings of stuff and in the end we just took out the ones we thought that could actually work in the story and we could afford to spend the time. We didn't want to do 20 things moderately. We wanted to do half a dozen things well. I can't really remember anything that didn't get into it. The other ideas I think were mostly half-assed ideas. They weren't, you know, I think there was something that they thought, should he fly or something? You know, should he have some sort of backpack? We did stuff with his different visions that he had. You know, we put that kind of stuff in and that was kind of complicated. Once again, I'm going to be disappointing and dull and not be able to remember anything. Now, I, th I think he was such an upgrade anyway, and we wanted to make sure that he didn't, you know, 
if, if he could pull literally anything out of his ass, we thought then you, know, you want him to feel like he's got all the right stuff on, but he couldn't like, you know, shoot a bullet out of his finger or something like that. Well, you were talking about... Um, you know, we always kind of saw him as a stripped down warrior, you know, where he would drop into anywhere with what he's wearing. And that was a part of his challenge, right? He'd fight. He'd be like a hunter. He'd go into the woods with what he had on and he would take on... I'm a big skier and I skied in Taos one year and I had this great instructor who would take me off piste and he had most of his fingers missing, but he was a great archer. He had his fingers bitten off by a bear, but he would take people into the woods and he would only take people in if they would hunt for moose or elk, which are gigantic, but only with bows and arrows, no guns. And once they went in, they would have to strip the animal down, skin it and carry everything out. And that was that, that's what I always kind of saw how the predator was. That was his challenge to himself was to be able to travel light. And, you know, we didn't we didn't want him to sort of, um, you know, like that, that great first aid kit he has where his arms, his hands cut off. That was awesome, I thought. And, you know, that was mostly fluorescent gel from a Halloween shop, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff with a smaller stunt person so we could make all those things happen. And we made the bathroom a small set so to make him look huge. And to have all those tricks where it looked like he was, you know, he was a bit like a commando, you know, and a Marine and, and, and everything was compact to his body or eight foot of him. That was a challenge, I think. But the nature of the Predator and how he was presented in your film is a big reason why there's so many of us that are fans, because it was really that film that we could tell that the Predator wasn't a psychopathic monster. You know, we see these aliens in movies that just want to eat human flesh or just kill for the sake of killing. But we never saw a creature before that actually spared its prey. You know, when Danny Glover sits there and defeats the Predator, he gets rewarded for it. And it was fascinating for like so many people, including myself, back in 1990 to see that. So um, it, it was just really a unique, it felt like a slasher film, yet it felt like something more. And your film really conveyed that. Well, I think it comes back to the analogy of the hunter again. I think that's what Jim and John wanted too, to feel like if there was no honor system, then like you just said, he's just a psychopath going around and can, there's something much more, um, there's something quite human about it. You know, you can understand it. I'm not a hunter, but there are, I know a lot of environmental people who are great environmental who started off as hunters because they wanted to go in the wild and feel the wild and, and be challenged by it and to face off against a creed, not, not, sh- not shoot a lion through bars like all these trophy shit or to go and shoot a, a deer from a thousand yards, you know, away with a weapon, but who, who wants to get into to understand nature, I think, and understand themselves. And I think this hunter mentality was the was what you're talking about. And and I think often in the other Predator films I've seen, there wasn't a chance to explore that. You know, he was such a big character in this. I, I And it would have been difficult, I think, after this film to have taken it much further, you know, unless he had a girlfriend or something. <laughs> you know, this is, this is the film that showed his code of honour. I think yeah. more than the first film had time to. And the films afterwards were mostly the Predator with aliens or other, you know, so there was it was more sort of battle films rather than about the creature itself. And then, of course, at the end, like you say, we had the Lakers dressed up as the other Predators coming out and creating quite a, quite a moment, which was an amazing time on set, I have to say. 
Well, in that ship with those lost predators, you know, the late, great Larry Paul, who um, I think died earlier this year, explained that the lost predator ship set was designed to appear organic and biomechanical in nature. And while fans have been able to learn details about much of the ship's design, there has been little mention regarding the ship's antechamber ceiling that appears like a large reptilian I. Uh, do you recall any thoughts of that curious ceiling design or anything else about the ship that might not be common knowledge? Well, we started with what the Predator looked like, you know, and there was a sort of, you know, he had a kind of scaly skin and there was a reptilian quality to him. And actually, we came up with it. We came up with lots of different ideas, most of which were too expensive. And we came down and down and down into something once again because he was you know traveling mostly you know it was a, a small craft he dropped in he he hunted and he left it wasn't supposed to be like a city landing you know it's something that you had to hide in the forest or in the city and we actually kind of based it it was more of a less than an eye it was more like a giant snail shell if you look at it because all, all the pieces were kind of overlapping you know so it was more it was like organic matter it was this this, this the spaceship was made of something that was living and it was a a real challenge to light. Peter did a great job. He kind of backlit the fiberglass panels. We had 1980s rock videos, dry ice on the floor, you know, because we couldn't build all of it. We couldn't afford to, but it, and it felt bigger than it actually was. It wasn't that big a set. But I think it was more trying to make it feel organic and alien. And, you know, unlike the great Ridley Scott and uh, James Cameron, where they took science fiction and they made it feel like you're in the in the bowels of a, a submarine or, or in a battleship, you know, where they made they brought science fiction right down to Earth. We thought, you know, just do something different and, and make something really different looking, but something that didn't something that felt as organic as the creature as itself. I think, you know, something you never saw, obviously, a, you know, how he flew the ship or anything like that. It was much more like a cocoon, like a, like a shell to protect him from the elements that he just moved from one space into another to, with. Yeah, we saw no dials or knobs or anything to control the ship. It was fantastic. Yeah, that's just chickening, us chickening out so we don't have to figure it out. But you actually you probably see more of the ship or more of, more of what it was in the sequence where he's cleaning the head, I think, in a way. That's, that's, what, the, that's what he wanted the ship, which was quite horrific, too. I mean, that, the feeling of that, you know. And then, of course, Stan and I sort of snuck a, an alien skull in there, too, as a joke, partly. And, and we thought we'd get in trouble. But, and there's a, there was a bit of it left in the final cut. Before we go off onto that, because we are going to go off onto that, do do you think a thing in sci-fi now is that creatures utilize other creatures as as space travel? Star Trek did it, Lex did it, Farscape did it, that kind of thing. Do you think there was could have been anything in terms of the lost tribe ship being a living entity? Perhaps was was that ever in in the mind rather than a nuts and bolts kind of ship? No, we just thought it would be made out of biomechanical materials, so it wasn't made out of metal necessarily, and it, you know it was, it was almost ceramic. You know, it was almost like, you know, as I said, if you went, we went to nature for it, as if it was a, the shell of a tortoise or the or the armadillo. And yeah, you know, and then there's a belief that that will be the case in the future. I think that some some of these devices will be grown, you know, as opposed to forged. I think, and yeah, and we just wanted to make it feel lightweight and not too enormous and not too not like a city of creatures land not like uh, et or something you know i mean or sorry um first encounters or something it's not like a city landing it's a a one-man pod more intimate yeah more more like armor i think in a way 
Now I have to ask this question because the fans have been asking this for years and they continually love to discuss it. You know, you were talking about the heads of Arnold on a poster. We need to know where is Peter Key's torso? And what we mean is when the Predator throws his smart disc and deals the death blow to Gary Busey's character, we see the bottom half of his body fall, but his amputated upper torso and his head is nowhere to be found. Now there is a pillar in that shot that it possibly could have fallen behind, but most consider it a blooper or gaff. So no, do you- an MPAA thing. They had us take it out. You know, when you because when you saw this the torso with all the entrails flying through the air, that was one of our sacrifices. <laughs> so that was actually filmed. Yeah, I mean it was a real body that they all fell together. And when he went down there later on, you know, we cut around it. There was the what was left of it, but you know, it's one of the deals we made. So his body's there. It's the MPAA habit. <laughs> that that that's on the courtroom room floor. Yeah, I mean, if if we'd let that shot stay a little bit longer, you'd have seen the legs fall and the torso come down. If you you know, you, but we just gone to go cut around all like you know six frames out of here, ten frames out of there. Whatever. It's funny what things become such a hot topic among the fan community. <laughs> you know, right? No, I understand. I do the same with movies. Yeah. So you you just sort of touched on on the alien skull thing, and that is. Back then, you know, before AVP entered the theatrical series, you know, that was a huge part of the excitement of Predator 2. You know, it's such a small moment, but it meant so much to a lot of people. But it's it's one of those things that's become a bit of a curiosity. And because mm-hmm. there's been a lot of different stories about it. You know, in, in an interview with Starburst, I think you meant in nineteen ninety one, you'd said it was your idea. Stan and I, we th- I mean, I, I brought up to Stan. He thought, he, and he's a very mischievous guy. But Fox really wanted us to cut it out. I don't know what it was because okay. you know, while I was making Predator Two, I was offered Alien Three by Fox, and I, I just didn't want to do Nightmare on Elm Street Five, Predator Two, and Alien Three. I just thought, you know, I should have, maybe I should have done it. But it, you know, I, I knew Fox owned all the rights for these things, but I, I, I think there was something going on because I thought it was really fun, and it, it was—it's in much more in the original cut we did, but it wasn't MPAA. The Fox really didn't—they thought it was distracting, whereas I, I didn't see why. I thought it supported the myth. You know, if you're going to go up against the most dangerous creatures in the universe, there's one of them right there. And, I'm, and maybe I don't know if they thought, oh, the alien would have killed the predator or this or that. But I mean, it's in it's in for a brief moment, right? And and I, and I fought to try and keep it in because I just thought it was literally for that. As a fan, I would have loved to have seen that. I want to see that. You know? oh, God, yeah. Well, that's why so many people are excited by that one as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, has that been something you'd thought about since you basically started Predator Two? Then because I think I mean, I sent you that storyboard that uh, you'd done with. The, with the skull yeah. on there. So that must have been in your mind for a, a little bit of time while you were working on yeah. that. You know, I, mean, I was in a Stan shop and, and Stan's shop was just, oh God, you could just spend days there if you wanted to. Or well, he had such great shit all over the shop. And they had these amazing skulls. And I went, oh, my God, we've got to get this in. And, yeah, when I was storyboarding, I put it in because I just thought it was – it wasn't in the script to start with, but it was in in Stan's shop, I think, hanging over us in our conference room. So I thought, that's got to go in. Was that just like one of the props from Aliens just knocking around up there? Yeah, which he made bigger and better. He he took it a bit further. And, yeah, he was was a a great loss. He was such a great guy, Stan. Yeah, no arguments there. Do you know that alien skull is still missing? It was stolen uh, shortly oh. after production, and you can still find it on the Los Angeles Police Department website for its un- uh, <laughs> missing art pieces. And there it is on the wall next to it. <laughs> I was wondering. 
<laughs> you know, actually, one of the questions we do love to ask people who made the films we love so much is about souvenirs. Is there anything that you kept after production? Do you possibly, Stephen, have a Predator mask or a smart disc sitting around your house somewhere? No, they were very, they were, there was no way they were going to let any of us have any of that stuff. I think I was given some, you know, action figures, which are still in boxes. I've got all the storyboards. I've got a lot of paintings I did personally for the film, including ideas for the, for the, I did one of uh, Danny Glover hanging off this kind of gargoyle with a predator standing above it with LA behind. And I, I, I often have to paint stuff and draw my stuff myself to imagine it, you know, to, to place it. But I've never been much of a keeper of things. You know, I've got, I think there's stuff in storage, but I just, there's no way they wanted you to have it. And they were expecting to do Predator 3, 4, 5, 10, 11. And I'm not sure they didn't, because the film didn't perform so badly that it was, you know, I think one of the reasons we did the, the new version of the 70 mil print last year of the film is because Shane's film was coming out and they thought that was going to reignite the series again. And because it didn't happen now, they didn't put out a 30th anniversary on which they wouldn't have been able to do this year anyway now, I guess, now because no one's in the cinema. But it's interesting that I guess The Predator never had massive audiences, did it? It was never a worldwide blockbuster. I've got to say my residual checks say something different because <laughs> a lot of people have seen that film. It's kept me going for a long time. But it's it, it was never the size of the Alien films, was it? I don't think. Or mm-hmm. films or anything like that. It was it was always a kind of smaller, weirder hybrid, wasn't it, between horror and science fiction. And I think a lot of people perceive it as a guy in a rubber suit kind of piece. But, but we tried, you know, I think most of the films have been very good to The Predator. I think when The Predator and The Aliens both went digital, something got lost for me in those films. Because we had a guy there, you know, and at one point we had eight guys there, all in suits, and they're all standing there, and you've got a camera, and the actors are there, and you can feel it, you know, and it's different when you're told there's someone walking around with a tennis ball on a stick and say, oh, maybe look how scary this is. But when, when you've got something real to play with, you get great photographic accidents and all sorts of exciting stuff happen, and I think... It's a bit of a loss in the film world, as much as I love it sometimes, you know, we're having to do this digital stuff, not to have the real things in front of you are, uh, and, I, I, and to this day, I was, I did a, a pilot I thought was great last year for Dark Tower, which was a, a huge TV pilot, you know, for the new series. And it was really epic in scale, this thing. But we almost never had a green screen. We built everything and everything was there for real. And the actors really reacted to it. Clearly, Amazon didn't. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> But I think I think there was a change of the guard while we were making it. And so what, what we ended up doing, which is what we intended to do, was not what they wanted. But it was yeah, when when you build stuff for real, I think it really helps everyone and, and it, it gives it a sort of or maybe I'm just being an old-fashioned person, but it gives, it gives you yeah, a feeling that you can touch something. But I think that that's something that matters a lot to fans of you know, of Predator, fans of Alien, fans of sci-fi and horror in general, you know, practical effects is a huge thing. You know, when when you do get a new franchise film coming out, the thing they want to know is, you know, are you sticking with, you know, are you sticking with practical effects here? Is this going to be a guy in a suit kind of thing? So, no, it isn't just you. Don't worry. It's not just you. It's whole sleuths of fandom and, and the audience that like that. And you that really should get the right guy in the suit too. Kevin Peter yeah, Hall, yeah. just a master. He was like a brilliant dancer, you know, and he could contort his body. He was incredibly fit. 
and physical. His 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 costume weighed like 120 pounds, you know, and he had to he had to run around with that thing on. His headpiece by itself was like 40, 50 pounds, and he had all these electronics and five or six people operating remote control stuff on his head while he's acting. You know, he, he was an extraordinary person. You know, there's no there's no coincidence that uh, the films he was in when he was in costume were, were so successful. I think. It was so sad to lose him. I think he died, I think, within six months of the uh, film's release, you know, and at the time, you know, everyone knew it was a blood transfusion. And I thought a lot of us thought he, he might have had a uh, blood disease like uh, a hemophiliac or something. But we, we were able to find an article in the New York Times that it was he, he, he got a blood transfusion due to a car accident. And, you know, they just weren't testing blood for uh, HIV at that time. And it, it was just so tragic to lose him so young. You know, I think he was 30s yeah. early early 30s. Yeah, and I think in the suit, he got really hot and really cold constantly, and we couldn't afford to take the whole thing off all the time. So because of the awful experience with the HIV transfusion, you know, it turned into pneumonia. And and uh, that's one of the primary ways that HIV used to get people in those days. It just killed his immune system. And obviously, none of us knew it happened. It was very last minute when we all found out about it. Well, he's still among the fans. He is, you know, there's been a lot of people that have done the Predator suit and have done a good job at it. But Kevin Peter Hall remains the favorite, you know, the the trendsetter, the, the standard bearer. And, well, it's something again about, you know, animating something the way you want to do it and someone playing it, you know, because if, if you animate it to do anything you want, then, you know, it defies gravity to a certain extent. However, however beautifully done it is nowadays all the time. You know, if there's a choice, you have it there for real, I think. So it has it has weight and, and it, it isn't as perfect. When it's too perfect, I, I think unconsciously you don't believe it as an audience member. The Uncanny Valley thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think he did a lot of studies in dance as well. Yeah, and he, he did a lot of studies in African dance for this character. And he brought a lot of those, that sense into how he moved and how he held the spear and all that kind of stuff. And did all the finger motion as well, yeah. So you, you men, you've mentioned a couple of times now um, that you and Peter Levy had prepared a new 70mm version of Predator 2 for a potential anniversary release. Was that more just a, a 4K upscale kind of thing? Yeah, but it was off the 70mm print, so it looked awesome, yeah. Hmm. It was gorgeous, and it was with brand new, you know, color timing technology. And you know, I miss film grain in my old age. There's something, something again that makes you kind of, you know, when everything's crystal clear, you know, then sometimes I don't believe. I remember I was at Mark Goldblatt's house a while ago. I remember he got a new projection system, and he put in this this 4K version of 2001. It just looked awful. <laughs> it was so. And it just it just lost all its you know all its uh, epic. We had to fuck around with the controls for ages to just to get it looking right again, you know. Because it was just they they pump a lot of light into a lot of these things, and because they think you want it to be brighter, but all you end up is seeing the mat lines and and you know not believing what you're seeing anymore. I think. Were you involved with the Predator Two 4K transfer? Uh, yeah, Peter Fox and did it a bunch of times. I saw I went and saw one version because I was out of the country. I passed through LA. I was living in New York at the time, so I passed through and and uh, yeah. But we obviously worked on the first one so much. He just made it look as good as it can, I think. But yeah, you, know, you can keep the darkness. You don't have to make everything bright just because it's going to 4K. It's a uh, it's not right. the point. Just to go back a little bit and test your memory again, apologies. Oh, the, the the shooting script that we got our dirty mitts on came with two alternate endings. You know, one is the one we get in the film, but there was a second one where the elder, the, you know, the greyback predator actually dealt the death blow to City Hunter and beheaded him. Was that actually filmed or, or no. was that dropped during shooting? It was dropped. I, I 
it was talked about a lot. But I think, like you were saying earlier, we just all felt we wanted there to be much more interesting to have a code of honor, I think, and to have a, to drop a history piece in, which is taken from the first film and from the comic book too, I think, right? I think, and the the, the idea of having the, the gun with the date. And so, you know, it's partially to set up future films, but it was also a nice, literally coda at the end of the film, I think, where no one really wins in the end, you know, and it was like more like a nice, great 70s thriller ending. So, you know, Danny doesn't win, Keys' lot don't win, you know, the Predators don't win. And there's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I thought it was a really good ending. I think some people thought it was anticlimactic, but I liked it. Oh, no. Yeah, I think the ending's one of those, again, it's one of those parts that just means so much to fandom because of what it implies and, and what it was and just the whole set piece, you know, of, of, of that ship as well, you know, it was, it was brilliant. It's one of the, it's one of the memorable moments and the standout moments from the entire franchise. So in a Starburst interview that we've mentioned a few times, and you've mentioned a few times throughout this, Predator 2 was a rushed, rushed release, a rushed production. And it resulted in three different versions of the, the film being shown across the States as post-production work was being completed at the same time you were putting these things together. We know there was a, a pirated copy floating around New York in VHS with the, you know no music or, or FX shots. These different versions that, that came out in the States, was it, was it pretty much just the quality of the FX work that was being done on them? Was that the only real difference to it these? It was the quality, and I think there may have been some not perfectly MPAA cut versions too. So some gorier versions out there. With a frame here and a frame there, but it's mostly about visual effects being finished or not being finished, I think. Okay. And and I got sold a VHS in in a market in New York where they had all the Predator sequences. After we finished shooting the film, while we were editing, we had to shoot for another four weeks of the Predator in red costume, a red Predator, a green Predator, and a blue Predator on wires against different color screens and on wires doing all the different things but you know so you could create the you know on motion control cameras which were pretty difficult to work in those days yeah so the camera would be doing the same thing and do the same thing every time and so you could create the prism invisible effect you know you needed the different colors and so all the scenes were for the predator in, in different colored screens in red green or blue ones because we'd have to send it off to Tessini all the time to get back so we could talk to Greenbergs in New York about. So someone in New York snuck a version in. I, mean, I had the same thing happen. I was, when I was the movie Blown Away, I finished the film, I went to England for a couple of weeks while they assembled it, and in Camden Market, there was a version of Blown Away on VHS <laughs> before I'd even started editing it yet. So hacking is not a new thing, but it was done pretty brazenly in those days. It's always amazing to watch the behind the scenes. And I guess, is that called a clapboard? But I was looking at the special effects and they have the dates on that, you know, that little clapboard. And uh, I'm seeing September and October 1990. And I'm like, oh, my God, (laughs) you know, how did Steven get this thing out in time if they're doing these, you know, red suit shots, you know, with a month or two to go? Well, I remember on the Nightmare on Elm Street film, which I overlapped, I'd finished the sound mix and I was still shooting. And I was still, I was... (laughs) In the, in the, I was shutting it, doing the sound mix in Warner's Hollywood, which is now called The Lot. And we were out in outside shooting model shots and all this kind of stuff that we knew what the length of them were. And we'd already put the music and the sound in, so we had to drop them in afterwards. Literally a week before it came out, you know, in several thousand cinemas. And Predator 2 wasn't that bad, but yeah, we were, we were just, kept, we were shooting while we were editing toward at the end. 
Well, many years later, after the release of Predator 2, fans were treated with this wonderful video that came out of nowhere that was featuring all the lost Predators on the spaceship set doing a choreographed dance with Danny Glover joining in the end. And I was just wondering if you recall that wonderful sequence and the story behind it and why like this was never released on, you know, by the studio as a home video supplemental. Well, D- Danny had actually persuaded because he was a huge Lakers fan when we were shooting if we had two or three cameras we'd be split the screen and the bottom right hand corner would be the Lakers game going on because he had to watch them all and and I, and I knew Magic Johnson a bit because we're his business manager of company was my business manager so he invited them all to come and do it not not Magic but the rest of them and then I went to lunch one day at, on the Fox lot because this the the set was out. when I came back I was presented with this VHS, which I still have, of them getting down with a ghetto blaster in the dry ice. They persuaded the visual effects guys to stay at lunchtime and do the dry ice and do this extraordinary thing. Because these guys are huge. It was a pity in a way that they didn't have something like someone normal sized in there or something normal sized. Because when you watch it, if you realize how enormous these guys were all in their suits, they were between seven foot nine and eight foot three tall. When you watch them doing that stuff and, and, and you imagine them, if they'd fallen over in these huge suits. Yeah, that was just a piece of genius. It, it's on the internet, actually, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were just wondering why I never made it on a DVD release. And I always wondered if like Stan found out about it, he'd be out of his mind. Like, what are you doing? We still have scenes to shoot. <laughs> it was done right at the end. I think it was the last thing we shot was a spaceship, I think. So right at the very end. Yeah. But I'm sure there are all sorts of legal rights and reasons why it could never be shown anywhere. And you'd have to get all the guys to sign off. And I think the music too, didn't own the music or, you know, all that stuff. But that's a one-off. Where- when you think back to your time on, on Predator 2 then, you know, knowing that it's this rush, trains left the station, you're not finished till it's out kind of thing. Are there any particular scenes that stand out to you that were the most interesting, the most fun to physically shoot on, you know, on the day, on the week kind of thing? I think adrenaline-wise, the opening sequence was crazy because we had, you know, there were so many moving parts and we had a very young crew. We had guys hanging out of cars with steady cams, and it was really not tightly scripted. So we sort of choreographed a, a big event that sort of almost really happened, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, but it wasn't sort of like, do this shot, this shot, this shot. We sort of created a whole circus and shot it from a lot of different angles. And obviously it was all storyboarded, but it was just a nonstop moving piece right from when the camera comes up off Griffith Park and to the predator looking down and then you're down amongst it and then you go up into the building and you come out right on the top. So it's, it's just this great snaking piece of filmmaking, which was just really fun to do and lots of different stuff. The, one of the most complicated sequences I've ever done was the slaughterhouse sequence and the ultraviolet thing because light, the lighting was very difficult. The dust, we all had to wear masks and keep the dust in the air. The predator choreography on wires, having to fight all these people, having to shoot all these different points of view, and then weeks later, running them off VHSs in a set with Gary Busey, people pressing the VHS machines, lining them all up. It was, it was mind-bending. It was kind of stuff I loved doing when I was a kid because it would just be like, how you know, how on earth do you do it? There's so many points of view, you know, including the Predator's point of view. You've got all the different uh, the soldiers, Marines' point of view. You've got Danny's point of view in the visual effect, in the video place. I mean, it, it's there's maybe 20 different points of view all happening at once, and it's, it was just cataclysmically difficult to do, I think. We shot it in Culver City in an old warehouse. 
And the pressure was on. We never had much time to shoot stuff. So we just sort of threw ourselves into it. And in those days, there were no rules, you know, really. You could just shoot around the clock, which we often did. But, you know, when you say the rush, I'd come from doing rock videos. I had more time than normal. You know, editing for a few months, right? You know, it's like, so it was, it was actually, it, it didn't feel particularly rushed or crazy to me because I was on an adrenaline high and used to it in a way. Would the slaughterhouse sequence, you know, with with how complicated it was, would that have been the most satisfying for you to actually see come together then in yeah. the edit? That it worked it was amazing because that's the one I storyboarded. I have so many storyboards of that to try and remember for all of us because you can't. The lighting is so difficult in that situation. You can't just shoot it in order. You've really got to work out what works in that lighting situation. You have to rehearse it like crazy to know exactly where everyone's going to be. It was a filmmaking trick. The subway sequence was interesting too, I thought. You know, the eyes, lack of light in that was great because we, we weren't allowed to shoot in real subway trains. We shot them up in Oakland, but we built a small set in LA and I really used the lack of light to help that come alive to the strobing effect. So you just saw things suddenly, you know, and then the big sections of black. That shot looks so complicated. Just watching it, I, I marvel how you guys completed that. You know, when he wants some candy or the time when uh, I think Bill Paxton's character is shooting at the Predator and you see the gunshots as Leona looks back in the subway, but the gunshots is not hitting Leona because there's that Predator, that camouflage Predator in the middle. And I'm like, wow, how did they do this with the flickering lights back in 8990? It's marvelous. Yeah, we could never have done it if it was all lit. <laughs> I made sure that there was a reason why the lights had to go off you know, in order to make it work. But you were talking about that slaughterhouse sequence real quick. A lot of people have compared with the with the cameras and the screens, thought that might be a nod to aliens, wasn't yeah. it? It was. Not much of a nod as a straightforward copy, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought the alien sequence was brilliant. You know, it was in the script, but it was, you know, it, with, without the alien sequence, I don't know if I would have been able to accomplish it so well as we had, I think. I think it's become a bit of a technical technique that the way when films want to do something like that, that's sort of what they lean on. You know, you had that with most prominently recently, probably be Jurassic World. You know, the first one of the reboots they did, they, they did a similar sequence in that. It's just right. it's just the technique, isn't it now? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're also used to watching you know, reality TV and all those, you know, where, where they use it as well. It's not just in films, it's used in everything now, isn't it? So in in the past, you've spoke about how when you revisit Predator 2, you tend to see things that jump out of you that you would have done differently. And I was curious as to if there's any particular scenes or any particular aspects that are really noticeable to you and they do jump out about being done different and how you would have done them differently. You know, I always think that about everything I do. I'm, I'm my worst, most vicious critic of all of these things. I think I just would have made it probably a little less over the top, I think. So it's, it's a little uneven in tone, I think. In tone, sometimes it feels really real. And then you have these crazy Jamaican guys in gold disco pants. And I, I, I just always want a sense of authenticity about stuff. And there's some of it just doesn't feel authentic at all. And some of it really does get to you. And I think there's a strange veer in tones, but there's, there's nothing I'm ashamed of or anything. And, and I think it is, it is just a child from the MTV running around blowing shit up at will and, and enjoying it with, with huge amounts of backup 
working with people who were much smarter than me and could really help me do something that I'd never had a chance to do before, you know. I think maybe the closest I've ever done to anything like that before was on the Highlander. You know, I would shoot a lot of the big battle sequences. I shot the death of Sean Connery in it with that castle falls down around him. You know, I had to shoot some of those things because the first unit just simply didn't have time, you know, and so I'd end up doing these very operatic pieces. And I, and I think there was a bit of a there was a bit of opera around about Predator 2. But, you know, I think one of the reasons if it turned out well at all is because I, I didn't have time to think. You know, you just did. Nowadays, we kind of... Sometimes on some movies, I poured over them and maybe made them worse by thinking too much. This was more a, a gut instinct, you know, film. And there's not a huge amount of dialogue in it, in the film. If you heard all the dialogue, it's basically Danny just running really fast and going, fuck, shit, fuck, motherfucker. There was an airplane version, even to this day, the airplane version came out and I, and I got this thing from the MPA about the airplane version and there was just three pages of four columns of swear words that had to be cut out, which I'm not sure how rated your show is, but it's every... <laughs> Fuck, motherfucker, fuck, fuck. Like, I just had to cut. Like, that. they were And it made me laugh because, you know. That was the 80s and 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, I think the airplane cuts of things are brilliant. I love to see the differences. There's one that always sticks out to me is J.J. Um, Abrams' Star Trek, the first one. And it was just it's just one random word. They replaced bastard with buzzard. And it just, <laughs> it just stuck out to me. And I always think about that one. I, I love airplane edits. They're brilliant. I, know, I, was a, I was on a plane flying to Tokyo because the Lost in Space was opening there. So I was flying there. And on the plane, uh, was they had Die Hard 2 in it. So while we're flying, this plane's crashing. This jumbo jet. Oh, no, people crying in there. <laughs> there are people crying next to me. Japanese were like weeping. I guess it's so horrific. You know, there's no there rules about that. Oh, that's going to happen now. Some critics were initially very hard on Predator 2 during its theatrical release in 1990. But now, 30 years later, it's been fascinating to watch so many critics in today's media embracing the film. Even as recent as last month, Yahoo! Movies posed the question, is Predator 2 a misunderstood masterpiece? I think it is. So three decades later, what is your perspective on the film now? And how do you feel about all the fans that have come to embrace it? It's funny. Wherever I go in the world, it, there, there are cults around this movie. I was working with Monica Bellucci on a film years later with Gene Hackman and Morgan Freeman. And, and Vincent Cassell was a boyfriend. And he came out and he started talking to me. I don't know he's talking. And he was quoting the movie to me because in France, they have these Predator 2 nights. and then. Oh. And everywhere I've been, I lived in Brazil for a little while. It was like they would have Predator 2 showing in parks outside because I think it's so outrageous, the film, that people just love, wait for these big, crazy moments to happen. And, and it's, it's a bit like a circus, the film, I think, in a way, with a few great lines, with massive performances from big character actors. I, I, I didn't read the critic stuff. I didn't think it was for critics, really, when it first came out. And I'm glad people think it, there's a misunderstood. But it definitely rings a bell with people. I think it. I think it was strangely original in a way because it was, as I said, it was less. It was more of a sort of tough Western in a city in a Latino future with where cars, you know, petrol was running out and water was running out. And it's not completely untrue. You know, there were gangs in L.A. when we were shooting. We were, we were protected by the Crips. 
there were people stabbed while we were shooting. We found dead bodies. We were fired at. We were, people were firing guns at us while we were shooting, real guns. And, you know, it was a downtown LA was no joke in those days. So it all added up into sort of an adrenaline thing. But clever scenes, I think, like the predator being hurt and fixing itself in the bathroom made it feel more like a, you know, a thriller or a battle film. Do you know what I mean? And so it was a real mixture of genres, I think. And there was some funny lines in it. And people like Bill are so charming. It's so quotable. Yeah, yeah, it's very quotable because there's not there's, there's not much dialogue, but there's probably a dozen great lines in there which people can't wait to yell when it comes up. But it, it makes you laugh, the film, too. And I think it's, it's a little scary sometimes, too, and surprising. It has twists and turns. Even though it's very similar plot-wise to the original, it's seen from a different point of view, I think. The Thomas brothers often talked about yeah. how they um, they were always spinning ideas for new Predator films, but you know it, it would take another ten years before Predator actually got to return to the big screen. So we were ten years. It's twenty ten. Must twenty years. So we were curious as to whether you'd been involved back in back then. You know, in in any potential sequel development for a Predator three, or was it a Predator two, and then you were done, kind of thing. I was done, and I think because possibly because Fox and Joel had a falling out, I think, uh, and because Die Hard Two, because of Die Hard Two and Predator Two not becoming a worldwide smash hit, and Arnold not being in it, and because Joel fell out with the Fox at the time, I think no one expected there to be another one in a hurry. Is it really twenty years? Was it before the next one? Wow! It was. It was twenty ten. So is my math failing me there? No. Yeah, that's twenty years, isn't it? Right. Yeah. yeah, we had those Alien versus Predator movies. Yeah, well, we're not. I'm not counting those. Okay. I'm, I'm okay. counting Predator. <laughs> Fair enough. So the last thing, I'm sure this will probably be a very short one. You you've mentioned in this one, and you've mentioned in the past that you were offered Alien Three. Mm. So do you remember much about the state of the film at that time? Was was that after Vincent Ward had left? I think he just left. I was still shooting, so whenever that was, and there was just a 50 page outline by Walter Hill. I think. And it actually sounded fascinating, but I was kind of exhausted. I you know, worked flat out for a few years in a row and I, uh, and I thought maybe I should try and do something different next rather than, you know, just another sequel to a big franchise. Maybe I wanted to do something that had other ideas, which I kind of sort of wish I'd done it now in a fun sort of way, because it was, I didn't hate the film, the Alien 3 at all. I, th- I thought it was quite sophisticated. I thought um, that, that very much has its own fans as well. Yeah. Have you have you ever thought about how you would have handled an alien film? Do you have a vision in your head of how you would have tackled that? Well, the alien films, because of Ridley Scott and James Cameron, have a much more sophisticated veneer, don't they? They're very alien changed the nature of science fiction completely, I think, how he brought that to life with improvised dialogue and brilliant stage actors and you know, and they just felt like a and it was very slow and very quiet and, you know, it was a really different type of genre. You know, it was amazing. I remember watching that film in Leicester Square and 70 Mill as a kid and just like hiding under the seats. It was so terrifying, that film. Man. And and Aliens 2 was similar to Predator. It was just an, it was a war, right? A little bit. You knew what the alien looked like, so you couldn't keep that. But, you know, Cameron did his usual brilliant thematic thing with it, where, you know, a mother and a daughter and all that great stuff, which wasn't in the first, obviously nothing to do with the first one. So he made it really different and made it much more fun, I think. And I think that Predator 2 was was sort of a bit like that. It was a bit more fun. But no, I mean, I, I think there's something much more literary about the Alien films, as strange as that sounds, you know. I mean, the last couple have been a bit baffling. 
But, uh, and I remember I actually sat with Ridley Scott and he explained before he did, um, sorry, what was the one before last, the, the alien film? Prometheus. Yeah, he explained the story to me before he shot it. And, and I took an hour just to explain. And at the end, I went, wow, I mean, are they going to let you make that? And he looked at me, I went, of course they're going to let you make that. You can make what you like. And, and he did, he did it. And he has ideas behind it, which I don't think come out in the film, but they're so complicated, these ideas. They're so complex. They're to do with Michelangelo being an alien and all this crazy stuff, you know? And, and it was, uh, you know, there's something about the alien films that really, and the creature is brilliant too, isn't it? It's so just creepy. Oh God, it's creepy. And it's, it's much darker, I think, isn't it? It's darker and weirder and more to do with fear itself and, and the people than the actual, uh, I don't think the aliens have ever really had characters, have they? They're not a real strong character. I mean, they tried in the last one, I think. I mean, so you've got, you've got Ripley and you've got Sigourney through the but original series. Not, not the actual alien itself, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. I, yeah. That, that's its whole other hierarchy kind of thing with, with the Queen and Cameron's thing, yeah. Well, Stephen, you've been terrific, and that is actually everything from us. But, but before we let you escape, is there anything you'd like to share, any anecdote or thought, something you didn't have an opportunity to say with any of the questions we've asked so far? No, no. I mean, you guys have uh, uh, been so great. You've asked me some, some interesting questions. It's not a, you know, a profound thematic film, but it was, it was really fun to try and do something looking a little bit into the future and to take a genre and, you know, play with it and, and move it into a different direction where it wasn't what it was supposed to be. I mean, often Europeans, we kind of like to mix up genres a lot. You know, if you have Doctor Who, it can be funny and sad and scary and this and that. And, and often with American films, I found over the years, I prefer to go one way or the other, you know, and to choose a thing. But Predator 2 was a real mixture of genres and I think it was allowed to go that way and I was very happy to do it and I'm glad there's some sort of cult thing to it but it, it is a it is a lesson to all of us I think is not to think too much about something once you start I mean think about it beforehand and then just let your instinct and your unconscious run with the ball as long as you're surrounded by people you trust with good stuff then you know, it, it was it think I think back at some of my movies I I, fi- I found them torturous and this was not one this was really fun to do you know I have great memories of it well, I hope everybody enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed recording it. If you were as surprised as I was that AJ kept his shit together and didn't lose it, make sure you let us know because that seems to be the prevailing thing that people are looking forward to is AJ just going mad. But sorry to disappoint, he kept his composure and he was a good boy. I tried to I mean, be professional. I know I know you used to work on Arnold fans, so did you actually get... Did you do many interviews through that? Uh, we did do some interviews, but they were lower, you know... B-level actors and some of the prop makers and stuff like that. Like we talked to Jody Sampson, who created the um, sword for Conan the Barbarian. And we talked to the other Sarah Connor who got shot by the Terminator, you know, the one that wasn't Linda Hamilton. So it was I never had an interview when um, I was on board this huge, you know, and this was a terrific interview. This was something that blew my mind and even impressed my wife. And being such a Predator 2 fan myself, the reason why I became a fan, my gateway to this fandom was Predator 2. And this film brought Predator fans and movie files a lot of joy in this past 30 years. So I I know Aaron's going to touch on this, but from the bottom of my heart and Aaron's and all of our community of listeners, just thank you, Stephen Hopkins, for graciously taking 
taking the time out of your important day to talk to us, to discuss this film that has brought so much joy to so many. And I, I want to encourage, if you like Predator 2, I encourage you to check out his filmography. Support his work. He really made some wonderful entertainment. The Ghost in the Darkness being one of my favorites. So check it out. And um, you might become a fan of not just Predator 2, but some of his other uh, great films and television. Indeed. And, and again, thank, thank you for Stephen for doing this. And if you've enjoyed the episode, you know, please be sure to let us know down below in um, the comment section on either YouTube or the um, the news post on the website, the forums, or, or even on the socials, wherever you're seeing this, you know, let, let us know how you're feeling down below. As you know, if you think we are off to a good start for 2021. Next up, we have an interview with uh, Jeremy Barlow, the writer of Alien vs. Predator Thicker Than Blood, which is one of my top three AVP stories. I've got to be honest, me and Adam really liked that story, and Jeremy was really fun to chat to as well. So keep an eye out in the next couple of weeks for that episode. And then following that, we'll be doing our roundtable discussion on the same series with AJ will be joining us on, and he's a bit more dour on that one. But not sure about if Eric's going to be joining us on that one. We'll see. Um, there's plenty of other stuff coming up after that. We've got Hunters to talk about, Hunters 3, Alien, the original screenplay. I've got a bunch of uh, interviews that I'm chasing, other Alien and Predator people, which should be fun. And as always, if you want to find out more about us as a community, if you've come to this interview, this podcast, without knowing much about us and, and you've come for Stephen, you can find us on avpgalaxy.net, which is where the hub of our activity is. And we have an old school message board, still alive and kicking, and still my preferred place to be discussing these things. So have a look, sign up, register an account, and, and join in with the rest of us nerds. Um, if you prefer Facebook, we do have a Facebook group and page. That's Alien vs. Predator Galaxy versus as in vs dot and we're on twitter as at avp galaxy instagram as alien versus predator galaxy all one word and of course if you're listening to this not watching then we're also got a youtube channel with video versions of our podcasts video editorials um, which are video versions of some of the articles that we post on the website and gameplay actually uh, we do let's plays we do live streams of the various alien and predator games so head on over and check that one out as well Oh, we also do a, a new sort of video thing on the news called Motion Trackers. It's kind of like mini podcast where we discuss, you know, the, the, the new big news sort of things. So, you know, Marvel's announcements and cover reveals and the Predator 5 slash Skulls announcement, the TV, you know, all sorts of that. It's just mini sort of 15, 20 minute, 30 minute mini podcasts on, on the latest news that's going on around Alien and Predator. If you want to find out more about me personally, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Corporal Hicks. And that's Aliens, Predator, Star Trek, Stargate, Airsoft. You know, it's, it's more about me outside of Alien and Predator and all the other nerdy stuff I'm into. What about you, AJ? I think you have a, a little presence. And you can find me on Twitter at effin, like effin voodoo magic. <laughs> and and they never get sold. <laughs> and that is Twitter, yes? Twitter, yes. Yes, brilliant. And you can well, find me in the community uh, forums as well. Indeed. Well, thank you everybody for watching. This has been Corporal Hicks. And this has been Voodoo Magic. Get into the chopper. <laughs>